Yate or Charles Yenashia. Hello, my relatives. In the Navajo culture, when we introduce ourselves, we always give our four clans. We're matrilineal as a people, and our identities come from our mother's mother. My mother's mother is American of Dutch heritage, and that's why I say Translated loosely, that means I'm from the Wooden Shoe people. My second clan, my father's mother, is Toihiglini which is the waters that flow together. My third clan, my mother's father, is also Tsinbukedina. Then my fourth clan, my father's father, is Tonuchidni. That's the Bitterwater clan. It's one of the original clans or Navajo people. I want to acknowledge today that I'm speaking to you from the land now known as Washington, D.C., and these are the traditional lands of the Piscataway. And I want to honor the Piscataway as the host people of the lands. These are the people who they hunted here, they fished here, they raised their families here, they buried their dead here, their society was here. And uh, these were the people who were removed from these lands uh, when these the Turtle Island was colonized. And so I try to acknowledge the people whose land I'm on no, no matter where I go around the country. And so I want to acknowledge today that I am on the land of the Piscataway and I thank them for their stewardship of these lands. It's an honor to be with you in your church service this morning. It's an honor to have an opportunity to preach and I hope that things are going well for you in Boston. And I want to talk to you about this passage. I've heard that you've been going through the book of Jonah. And I was asked to preach on uh, the passage in Jonah about Nineveh. And so I'm going to begin reading this morning from Jonah chapter 3. And we're going to read the first five verses to start with. We'll get through the whole chapter, but I want to start by just reading the first five verses. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Let me pray for us before we begin discussing this passage. Creator, thank you for your word. Thank you for the, the word that we have of you, the stories and the model of how you want us to live and the stories of your people and how you interact with them. We pray that you will bless our discussion this morning on these stories and on your word and that you will guide us and lead us as your people. Father, we also um, are just grateful for the sun that rose this morning. We're thankful for the weather, for the flowers, for um, everything you've done in this creation and the way it's so beautiful and it's so been a blessing to us to be a part of this creation. We pray that you will help us to be better stewards of your creation. And uh, thank you for this time we have together. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Right now, our nation is in a very challenging time. Not only do we have a global pandemic that is wreaking havoc on our nation, but it's also really showing the discrepancy in race and in gender and in class in our country, as it is primarily our people of color, our more marginalized um, uh, members of our society and, and those who are the least financially able to uh, deal with these challenges who are being hit the hardest. 
whether it's because of lack of insurance or where we live or who is expected to work, who is essential and who is not essential and all these things that are going on. And it's, it's causing a lot of challenges within our country. And we've been dealing with this for the past um, four or five months, you know, and so we've had stay at home orders and we've had all these things going on and we've had to adjust to a brand new, a whole new normal in our nation. And in the midst of that, we've had other crises throughout our country, such as the murder of George Floyd and other racial injustices that are happening, blatant injustices, outright atrocities being committed on camera in front of our eyes. And we are having to wrestle through that. And so we are wrestling with um, Black Lives Matter. We are wrestling with um, bringing ourselves to a point where do we really believe in the value of the lives of people from the margins or or do we not? And we are having debates about memorials and what do we honor and what do we remember? And we're having uh, discussions on systemic white supremacy and uh, institutionalized racism and what do we do about our policing system and all these things, these discussions that are going on. And in the midst of these, we are in our churches and in our in our Bible studies and our times we're reading stories from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, and we come across stories like this in Jonah, where there is also injustice going on, there is sin that is being uh, being taken place, and we hear stories like this where God sends a prophet and the people repent and they turn. And how many of our hearts don't jump at the thought of that? And we think that would be so beautiful, that would be so great if only our country were to respond this way, if only we could have a prophet coming into our nation, and if only the hearts of our citizens would turn and repent and follow the Lord. And we think, we yearn, we even pray for those things. But we don't often think through the implications of what we're hoping and praying for. We don't think through what does this mean and how does this actually happen. And we actually, as many Americans, many of us don't have not been trained how to even read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, as Americans. We tend to think as Christians, as American Christians, that we not only are in the narrative in the New Testament, through the blood of Christ, reconciled to a relationship with the creator of the universe, but we read the Old Testament and we tend to put ourselves in the place of Israel because Israel is God's chosen people. And we tend to think that, yes, we are, we are also God's chosen people. And so we apply the lessons to Israel to ourselves as American Christians. And so when we read these things, we don't think about ourselves as Christians or we don't think about even the church, but we think about our nation and we think if only our nation would do these things, if only our nation would respond in these ways. And those are the things that we yearn for because we think of our nation as somehow being chosen by God, that somehow we are exceptional, that we have a manifest destiny. And so we, we read these things and they be very convoluted and we don't think through the implications of them. And I want to take some time this morning to think through the implications of applying this message of Jonah to to the United States of America. So after we read these first five verses, I want to go on and read some of the following verses. Verse six says, when the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. 
Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let men, men and beasts be covered with sackcloth. Let them call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Now, while it was inspiring that the people of Nineveh heard the prophet and they decided individually to repent, verse 6 gets very troubling. Because when the king of Nineveh heard the cry of God and the prophet of God, he didn't turn and repent himself. Instead, he issued a decree, now mandating that everyone within Nineveh must turn and do these things. He used his authority as king to compel people to obey the words of a prophet or even a certain theology. And this is where it gets troubling, because if we look back both in the church history and in U.S. history, we see how this has happened, and it never has resulted in a healthy situation. Let's go back to a most blatant, the most clear example, which is back to the conversion of Constantine in the 4th century. So Constantine was the emperor of Rome, and he became a Christian. In my book, On Selling Truth, The Ongoing Dehumanizing Legacy, I go through how actually he came to Christ, and it, it was a, it's a very messy story, but I, you can read that there. I'm not going to go into all of that right now. But he became a Christian, and he decided, he accepted this belief in this heretical teaching known as Christendom, that he could become a God-ordained ruler of Rome, an emperor of Rome, blessed and ordained by God, and that he could, he could uh, lead his nation as a Christian nation. So when he converted, he didn't just convert as a man, but he converted Rome to the, 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 the faith of Christianity. And so now, instead of becoming a member of the church through baptism, confession, discipleship, and community, now you remember the church simply because you were a citizen of this empire. He moved the, the capital of Constantinople. He, he called the Council of Nicaea, and he created this Christian empire, this empire that was Christian. Now, Jesus, when he was alive, was actually very opposed to Christian empire, right? When Satan first tempted him, he took him on top to a high hill and showed him the kingdoms of the world and said, if you bow down to me, I will give you what he thought was the goal, which is these kingdoms. And Jesus said, no, that's not the goal. The people of Israel were waiting for a Messiah to come and free them from the oppression of the Roman oppressors. They're waiting for a political imperial Messiah to come and set them free and bring them back to the kingdom, the greatness of the kingdom of David. And one day Jesus was out and he was healing the servants of centurions. And he was healing and raising from the dead the sons of widows. And John the Baptist, who had been proclaiming the coming of Christ, heard what Jesus was doing. And he was so confounded that he sent his disciples to Jesus to ask him, are you the one we're expecting or should we look for someone else? What are you doing helping our enemies by healing their servants? What are you doing helping widows? They're not an important part of this revolution. And Jesus, I loved his response. He turned around. He raised more people from the dead, healed more sick, cast out more demons, and said to John's disciples, go back and tell your, your teacher what you've seen. And blessed is the man who does not fall away on my account. He rebuked John. 
No, this is what I'm doing. I'm not here as an imperial messiah. I'm here to change hearts. Either get on board or get out of the way. He rebuked John the Baptist. One point he was out and he was teaching and there were thousands of people listening to him and it became late in the day and they were hungry and his disciples said, send them away. He said, no, let's feed them. And so they took the lunch from a small boy. He got a lunch from a small boy and he fed the people. And they were so excited that they came to make him king by force. He said, no, that's not the goal. I didn't come to establish a Christian kingdom, and he walked away. When he was standing before Pilate, the end of his life, Pilate didn't want to crucify him. He was looking for a way to, to, to get out of this. And he was asking Jesus some questions, and Jesus wasn't answering. And finally, Pilate got frustrated. He said, do you not know who I am? I have the, the authority to set you free or to kill you. He said, you don't have any authority. The only authority I have is my father gave you. So my kingdom is not of this earth. If my kingdom were here, my servants, the angel, would come and set me free. No, my kingdom is from somewhere else. Jesus was adamant he did not come to establish a Christian kingdom. He was not here to compel people to obey him or to keep his theologies. He was here to offer and to speak the truth and to invite people, but not to compel, not to set up an institution, not to create a Christian kingdom. And so... After Constantine in the 4th century created a Christendom, a Christian kingdom, the theologians of the day had to decide what do they do? This is something new. We've never had this before. The church had always been oppressed and persecuted by the empire. Now we had a Christian king. And so actually Augustine asked the question in his book on the correction of the Donatists. He said, what is the role of a, of a Christian king in a Christian empire? We've never had this before. And his conclusion is that the role of a Christian king in the Christian empire is to compel people through fear, punishment, pain to keep the commands of the Lord. This is a complete deviation from what Jesus taught. He was not here to compel people to do anything. He was here to invite. He was here to speak truth. He was here to offer himself as a sacrifice. He was not here and he did not compel anybody to do anything, especially institutionally. So Augustine's teachings lead into, as the church, instead of prophesying against Christian empire, it embraces it. And this leads into the crusade, which is about expanding the empire and, and protecting Jerusalem. Then we get to Aquinas, centuries later. He's dealing with the heretics, the people who are teaching falsely. And he says, if, if worldly empires have the right to kill people who break men's laws, how much more right does the church have to kill people who break God's laws? So Aquinas argues that the role of the Christian king and the Christian empire is to kill people who disobey the commands of the church. This leads in, in the 15th century, 1452 specifically, Pope Nicholas V writes a papal bull called Dumb Diversus. And it says, invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens and pagans whatsoever. Reduce their persons to perpetual slavery. Convert them to his and to their use and profit. This papal bull became a part of a series of papal bulls known as the Doctrine of Discovery. The doctrine of discovery is essentially the church in Europe saying to the nations of Europe, wherever you go, whatever lands you find not ruled by white European Christian rulers, those people are subhuman and their land is yours to take. 
This is literally the doctrine that the European nations go into Africa, colonize the continent, enslave the people. They did not believe them to be human. It's the same doctrine that let Columbus, who was lost at sea, land in this new world. We used to call it Turtle Island and claim to have discovered it, even though it was already inhabited by millions. You cannot discover lands already inhabited. It's called stealing. You can colonize lands inhabited. You can steal lands inhabited, but you cannot discover them. The fact that to this day we honor Columbus as the discoverer of America reveals the bias, which is that native peoples and people of color aren't human. At least not to this Christendom, this Christian empire. See, these are the challenges we face as a nation. Is that we have into our foundation woven this worldview, this theology that comes from this doctrine of discovery, that comes from this heresy known as Christian empire, which was rooted in someone converting a king and emperor, Constantine converting, and instead of saying, I am now a part of the church, he said, I now am the church and I am creating a Christian empire, which was against the teachings of Jesus. Jesus was adamant, no, there's no Christian empire. And so we've been trained to, to read these passages incorrectly. We, we forget that with the coming of Christ, the way God related to the world changed almost fundamentally. In the Old Testament, God had a chosen group of people, the Israelites, and he interacted with them as a nation. And they had promised land. And their promised lands was part of their barometer of their relationship with God. They knew they were doing well if they prospered. God promised them, if you obey my command, I will protect you. I will strengthen you. I will provide for you. You will be in the land flowing with milk and honey. You will prosper if you obey me. But if you disobey me, I will exile you from your land. I will take away your blessings and you will be hungry and your children will be suffering. So. For Israel, prosperity was one of their barometers, a pretty primary barometer of their relationship with God. They knew if they were prospering that they were probably okay with God. Now, when Jesus came, he, in the Sermon on the Mount, said to his disciples, Blessed are you, not when you prosper, but when you're persecuted. He's giving them a new barometer. When he's revealing himself to the disciples, asking, who do you think that I am? And Peter correctly identifies him as the Messiah. Jesus doesn't rejoice and say, great, let's go tell everyone. No, he says, don't tell anybody. And then he starts teaching them that the Son of Man, the Messiah, must suffer, be persecuted, and even put to death. This is so repulsive to Peter, he takes his own teacher aside and begins to rebuke him. This makes no sense to Peter. What are you, you're the Messiah. You are not going to be persecuted. Jesus is giving this new barometer, and the disciples do not like it. There's a fundamental difference between how God relates. In the Old Testament, God relates through the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, God relates to the church. Jesus came to establish not a political empire, not an institution. He came to establish a church. And he relates to the church. He refers to the church as his bride. This is how he's interacting with. 
He's not compelling anybody to join this church. He is inviting. He is opening the door. He is standing there knocking. He is saying, come on in. But if people say, I don't want that, he lets them make their own decision. It's a fundamental difference between the Old and New Testament. Jesus changes so many things. And we tend to forget that. Now, this is because we think of ourselves as a Christian nation. And I don't have time to go into all of the messed up theology we have that leads us to believe that we are God's chosen people as America and we are exceptional and we have a manifest destiny, but that is truly what our nation believes. And so we read the Old Testament like we were Israel and we apply the the, the promises to Israel to ourselves as a nation. One of the more the main promises that we try to claim come from Second Chronicles seven fourteen. We all know this verse, we probably prayed them many times in our churches. Right? It says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their evil ways, I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins and what? I will heal their lands. See, this is a promise God made to Israel at the dedication of the temple. This is part of the land covenant. The church, I don't know the church, the, the United States of America, is not God's chosen people. In Turtle Island, these lands are not Europeans' promised land. There's nothing in Scripture that says if the United States of America humbles itself and prays and turns from its wicked ways that God will heal its land. No. The United States stole these lands. They ethnically cleansed them. They imported Africans here and enslaved them to build it up. The root the foundations of this nation are built in injustice, injustice. And so we cannot just apply these principles of the Old Testament to the United States as if somehow the United States was God's chosen people. The United States is not God's chosen people and Turtle Island is not our promised land. And we have to remind ourselves of that daily because everything around us tells us that's not true. The country is adamant about this notion of American exceptionalism. It's adamant about its manifest destiny. It clings to these promises. And so this is where, as a church, when we read passages like Jonah, we have to think through, who is this talking to? What is this message? And how can we begin to apply it? If we can't apply the message to the United States of America, because God is not about trying to establish a Christian empire. He's not about raising up a king to compel his citizens or his subjects to repent. How, how does this work? What does it mean? How does this fit for the church? These are the things, when we read the Old Testament, we have to have a very, very discerning eye. We have to think through these things very clearly. Otherwise, we are going to get off on some very broken theology that's going to do some incredible damage. One of the damages of believing that we are God's chosen people and this is our promised lands is that when you have promised lands, And if you read the books of Deuteronomy and Joshua, how does God command the people of Israel to take their promised land? What does he command them to do? He literally commands them to kill everybody, to leave no man, no woman, no child left alive. God's promised land for one group of people is literally God-ordained genocide for another. 
Now you're thinking, Mr. Charles, you're way off. Our nation does not do that. That's not how we interact. That's not what we do. That's not the way we, we think about ourselves. Well, I want to read for you a quote. This is from 1851, Peter Burnett, who was the first governor of California. And in his first day of the state address, in 1851, this is what he said. That a war of extermination will continue to be waged between the races until the Indian race becomes extinct must be expected. While we cannot anticipate this result but with painful regret, the inevitable destiny of the race is beyond the power or wisdom of men to avert. He's not saying famine's broken out and we can't feed these people. And he's not saying disease has spread, we can't stop it. He is literally saying we cannot stop killing these people as we complete our manifest destiny. In Israel, who was the greatest king of Israel? It was King David. Why? Because he killed all his enemies. Saul killed his thousands. David his tens of thousands. His hands were so bloody, God wouldn't even let him build the temple. Who do we celebrate as a nation? One of our greatest presidents is Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was a blatant white supremacist. The 13th Amendment, which was his legacy, keeps slavery legal in prison. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime where the party has been duly convicted. The 13th Amendment doesn't abolish slavery. It codifies it under the jurisdiction of the criminal justice system. There's a quote hanging at the Lincoln Memorial. It says, I would save the Union. My primary object in this struggle, Lord Abraham Lincoln, is not to save or destroy slavery, it's to preserve the Union. If I could save the Union without freeing a single slave, I would do it. If I could save by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. If I could save by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. There's a quote hanging at the Lincoln Memorial that literally states, according to Abraham Lincoln, Black lives don't matter. This is why we honor Abraham Lincoln. He found a way to institutionalize white supremacy and constitutionally protect slavery. And not only that, in 1862, he signed two bills to complete manifest destiny, the Pacific Railway Act and the, and the um, a Settlement Act. Within two and a half years of signing those bills, Abraham Lincoln, through the hanging of the Dakota 38, the removal of the tribes from Minnesota, through the Sand Creek Massacre and the oppression and injustice against the Cheyenne and Arapaho, and through the, the Long Walk and the ethnic cleansing of the Navajo and the Mescalero Apache, Abraham Lincoln has literally ethnically cleansed almost all the tribes and native peoples from the states of Minnesota, Colorado, and New Mexico, clearing the way for the Transcontinental Railway, making him one of the most genocidal presidents in the history of our nation. And we celebrate him as our greatest president. Just yesterday, we celebrated the 4th of July. We've had a very robust debate for the past two months about systemic white supremacy and institutionalized racism. We've talked about defunding the police. We've talked about chokeholds. We've talked about all these things. We've talked about Black Lives Matter. We've discussed these things down and we've, we've made some big choices. You know, we've, we've, Mississippi is changing their state flag. Statues of Confederate generals and, and, and flags are coming down around the country. And yesterday, the nation came together and celebrated the 4th of July. In 1763, King George drew a line down the Appalachian Mountains, and he said to the colonies who were here that they no longer had the right of discovery of the empty Indian lands west of Appalachia. 
This upset the colonies. They wanted access to those lands. So a few years later, they wrote a letter of protest. In their letter, they accused the king of raising the conditions of new appropriations of land. They went on in their letter to state that he has excited domestic insurrections amongst us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages. They signed their letter on July 4th, 1776. Literally, 30 lines below the statement, all men are created equal, the Declaration of Independence refers to natives as merciless Indian savages making it very clear the only reason the Founding Fathers used this inclusive term, all men, is because they had a very narrow definition of who was actually human. This makes our Declaration of Independence a systemically white supremacist document, and yesterday, our nation celebrated that. But this is the challenge. This is what happens when the church stops being the church and tries to become the Christian empire. This is what happens when, instead of sharing the love of Christ with people, our rulers try to compel people through laws and institution and regulations to not only keep the commands of God, but even to worship God. This is what happens when, when we stop being the church and we start being the empire. So how are we supposed to read, then, books like Jonah? How, as Christians, are we supposed to read, even American Christians, are we supposed to read the Old Testament stories? Well, we have to remember who we are. We have to remember, even in the New Testament, how we fit into the narrative. We are not brought into the narrative as Jews. We are not brought into the narrative as God's chosen people. We are grafted in through the blood of Christ. We are Gentiles in the story, especially as Americans. We are, we are coming at this from a very, very different narrative. And we have to understand that. I do a lot of work with the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship. And I, I teach at the seminary there, and I work with the Worship Institute. And every summer I teach, at, or every winter I teach in their symposium, and I help with their grants program every summer. About two years ago, I was there, and they asked me to write uh, some of my prophetic teachings out in the form of a proverb. The, the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship loves to work with the Proverbs, and they asked me to write something called From Prophecy to Proverb. How would I talk about my prophetic message and the role of the church in light of all the stuff we've just talked about in a, the form of a proverb? And this is what I wrote for them. And I wrote this, this was back in 2018, back when uh, our, our nation was dealing with the immigration crisis and families being ripped apart at our borders. And I wrote this. I said, why is the church that refuses to buy into the trappings of partisan politics. Remember, my brothers and sisters, Jesus did not come to create a Christian empire. He came to make disciples. He came to offer his body as a living sacrifice. He came to plant a church. When the church merely lobbies one political leader and protests the other, when for the sake of argument or political gain, the body of Christ turns a blind eye to one sin and magnifies another, we are not representing the headship of our body, who is Christ. As vile, repulsive, and urgent, is the current crisis of families being ripped apart at our borders. It's not the first time. Indian removal, the slave trade, boarding schools, lynchings, Japanese internment camps, mass incarceration, even the deportation numbers of the last decade. The list of ways the United States government has worked to destroy the family structure of people of color throughout our history is as long as it is depressing. So let's stop pretending that one president is the God-ordained savior 
or the ultimate demise of our union. The same with any other president. What our nation needs is not for Democrats to be better Democrats, nor do we need Republicans to be better Republicans. We don't even need our nation to be more Christian. My brothers and sisters, the United States of America is not, never has been, nor will it ever be Christian. Jesus did not come to create a Christian empire. He came to make disciples. He came to offer his body as a living sacrifice. He came to plant a church. And wise is the church that refuses to buy into the trappings of partisan politics. I agree with Kenneth Kaunda, the former president of Zambia, who said, What a nation needs more than anything else is not a Christian ruler in the palace, but a Christian prophet within earshot. I shared earlier that I'm the co-author of a book called Unselling Truths, The Ongoing Dehumanizing Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery. And the book wrestles with the question we've been wrestling with this morning. What is the role of the church? How did the church get from the teachings of Jesus to a dehumanizing doctrine of discovery? How have we gone so far off? How has our barometer changed of persecution and suffering to one again of prosperity? And as we were writing, my co-author and I, Sun Chan Ra, we were getting to the end of our book and we were looking for a way to conclude it. And we thought about using this, pro, this, this writing that I, I wrote in my, in, for the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship. But as I thought about it, and as I realized the book, and our book had started out as a call to lament for the church, but the more we studied the history of the church, the more we realized how the church was complicit, not only in what's happened in the past 250 years, but in what's going on today, we realized that we didn't need to call simply to lament. We need to have a rebuke. And we realized that the church was not able to play the role of prophet. Because the church has been complicit in this, because the church has taken on the role of Christian empire, because the church has stopped advocating for the love of Christ and started trying to compel people to keep the commands of Christ and even to become Christian in the first place, the church has lost its ability to be prophetic. It has become a part of the problem and not able, therefore, to be part of the solution. And so we had to change the way we even concluded the book. And I want to actually read to you how we concluded the book, because I think this is one way that we need to think about what is going on. I want to read to this, you this last few paragraphs from the end of our book, as we conclude talking about this problem of the church becoming a Christian empire. And we wrote, suppose there are two families living next door to each other. One family regularly attends church and the other does not. David, the husband of the church-going family, is committing adultery with Eliza, the wife of the family next door. As a result, the second couple is experiencing problems in their marriage. Eliza, Eliza, Eliza's husband, John, is unaware of the adulterous relationship and seeks help from a men's ministry in the church in their community. The church leadership greets John with open arms and informs him that they have a thriving ministry for men, especially those struggling in their marriages. In fact, this ministry is led by a church elder who happens to live right next door to John. When the two men meet, David realizes that John, who is seeking help, is Eliza's husband. But David has nothing to offer because of his relationship with Eliza. 
He cannot counsel John. He cannot comfort him. He cannot befriend him. He cannot even pray for him. The only role that David has in healing John's marriage is to get out of Eliza's bed. Because the problems our nation is facing are systemic and corporate. Because our problems are rooted in the doctrine of discovery and the heresy of Christian empire. And because the American church still broadly accepts the national identity of Christendom. And the church in America literally has, therefore the church in America literally has nothing to offer. Its only solution to our national problems is to make the nation Christian again. But that is precisely what caused our problems in the first place. In the Old Testament book of Hosea, God commands the prophet to go and marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. That's from Hosea chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. So Hosea married Gomer. After giving birth to several children, Gomer returned to her promiscuous, promiscuous life on the streets, even working as a prostitute. Later, the Lord commanded Hosea, go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. That's from Hosea 3, verse 1. Hosea went back to the streets. He paid for the services of his wife, and he brought her home. Jesus is the prophet. The Western American church is Gomer. And our adultery is with empire. In the book of Jonah, the city is sinning against the Lord, the city of Nineveh. And God decides to send his prophet to prophesy to the city. As we read this in the year 2020, we need to remember that the United States of America is not Nineveh and the church is not the prophet. Because of the doctrine of discovery, because of our history, the church is Nineveh and the prophet is Jesus. My hope is that the church will be more like the city of Nineveh. Not that it institutionalized faith or not because it, it, the king called for repentance, but that the church will be like Nineveh because the people repented and confessed their sins before the Lord. Our brothers and sisters, let me pray for us. Creator, our Father in heaven, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you that when those you love sin against you, you send prophets, you speak truth, and you call us to repentance. We pray, Father, that we will be convicted. We pray that we will be humble. We pray that we will be like Nineveh and that we will repent and turn back to you, not as a nation, but as a church. May we, may we repent of our sin and turn back to you. May we give up our imperial ways and once again become the bride of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.